exciting text today, every text in the Bible is, of Jesus entering into Jerusalem um, on what we call the Passion Week. I told you last week, this is the Easter week in the Scripture, which is, I think, a great time to be talking about Easter during the Christmas season, right? And just in the, the couple of days that, that, that's unfolding in 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, uh, will take us through up, up to the Easter season, up to the Resurrection Sunday. So uh, we'll get a good, hefty view of it. I, I always hate at Easter time having to rush through all that's there just to get it in and, and a good Friday and a Sunday. So I get a couple of months to do it. Um, so as we look at this passage, we see last week Jesus came into Jerusalem. He came into Jerusalem, he knew what was going to happen. He had told his disciples in chapter 18, verses 31 to 33, that he was going to be arrested. Uh, He was going to be whipped, beaten, scourged, killed, and he said, I'm going to be resurrected to life after three days. They didn't understand it. He said it in no uncertain terms, but this is where he knows he's going. This is his fate. Um, liberal theologians will say, well, that wasn't originally written in the Bible. That was put there after it happened to make it look like it was a prophecy, I'll prove that one. I mean, if Jesus is God, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, he knew why he was coming. He would not have become a man if he didn't come to live our life and die our death. That's why he came. We study, or we celebrate, I should say, the, the, the birth of Jesus, the baby Jesus. Why did he become a baby? He, he became a man to live our lives. He's, he lived our life. He did what you and I did, are doing, except that he did it without sin. Someone had to do that so that they could be the perfect sacrifice, the lamb without blemish, and die our death. And that's what he did. Isn't that beautiful? That's one of the beauties of the Christmas season is celebrating the advent of God in flesh. So he's coming to town. Remember, he rode into town on a, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, Because that's what the prophecy of Zechariah said the Messiah would do. He rode into town on a very humble beast of burden. He had fulfilled not only Zechariah's prophecy, but he came into town and I gave you Daniel's prophecy on this exact day where he came into town where Daniel had prophesied over 500 years prior that the Messiah would come in on that day. And the interesting thing, one of the interesting things, is the day that he came in was a Monday. We celebrate it as Palm Sunday, but it was most likely a Monday. Monday of that year was Nisan 10. Now, Nisan's not a car in our day. It's a month back in the days of the Jews. Nisan 10 was a day. And do you know that God had told Moses in the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 3, right before the Passover, he said, select a lamb on guess what day? Nisan 10. Slay that lamb on Nisan 14. I think it makes beautiful sense that when Jesus came into town, he was the selected lamb of God on Nisan 10. And when did he die as our Passover lamb? You guessed it, Nisan 14. Happened to be April the 3rd, AD 33, in our way of reckoning. He's the Messiah. He comes in, we call it a triumphal entry, but when he came in, the people were blessing and they were shouting. We see in in verse 38, they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I want you to hold your place there and just flip a couple of chapters over to chapter 13 and look at verse 34 and 35. Chapter 13, I say, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. 
Jesus looks out over Jerusalem in 1334, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's moaning. He's wailing. He looks at Jerusalem, by the way, as used here. If you know, you remember your, your figures of speech back in, in the seventh grade. I remember my figures of speech in the seventh grade. My reading teacher had them posted over the wall. You remember metonymy? No, you don't. We remember metaphors and similes. Metonymy is to replace one word with the, the whole of another. Jerusalem is being used as metonymy for the Jews. Now you're going to go away today and you go, hey, I remember metonymy now. Impress your friends. So when he says, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, he is speaking of the Jews in Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is the center of the, of the earth. Everything in the Bible is centered around Jerusalem, Israel. When the Bible talks about something that's north, it's north of Israel. South, it's south of Israel. If it's west in the Bible, it's west of Israel. If it's east in the Bible, it's east of Israel. It's the center of the earth. And Jesus cries out over the capital city of that, that dot in the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey that God promised to Abraham and his descendants forever, the great city of the great king, David, and his descendants, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. He's moaning and wailing at the unbelief of the Jewish people. The Jewish people in Jesus' day had seen the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of all their prophets. But this is a group of people that God chose out of, they came out of Abraham, this man Abraham, who had Isaac, who had Jacob, who was renamed Israel, who birthed the 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel, whom he brought out of Egypt and put in the land of Canaan, modern Israel, Palestine. God put them there gave them a great king, sent them prophets, told them all along, it was very simple, you live in the land that I put you in, if you obey me, I'll what? I'll bless you. You disobey me, I'll curse you. It's pretty simple. Do what I say. I remember pleading with my son when he was a kid. If you will just do what I say. And your parents, does this ring truth to you? You plead with these wretched little sinners. If you'll just do what I say, make your bed. I don't understand why. You don't have to understand why. Just do it. I'll make your life wonderful. I want to. You go check the next day, bed's unmade. After he did it, at a certain point, I removed everything from his room. Everything except the ceiling fan. He came in and had the gall to ask, where's my stuff? It's gone. Why? You didn't make your bed. I told you to make your bed. You didn't make your bed. Now you will live with the curse of having nothing. Guess what? He began to make his bed. His question was, why should I make my bed? I'm just going to sleep in it the next day. I followed with, why eat? You're just going to get hungry again. I mean, I thought it was pretty good at the time. My dad used the same thing with me. Just passing on dad's wisdom. This is the same attitude, Jesus, God has said this all along and then became man and said, I have, I have longed to gather you together like a mother bird brooding over her chicks. Please do what I say. But they didn't, they wouldn't, 
And so Jesus says in verse 35, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a quote from Psalm 118 verse 26. A Hallel psalm, a song to ascend up to Jerusalem at the feasts. So go back to our passage there in 19 where we were last week. In 1938, Jesus comes into town and Jesus said, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here he comes. And the people are shouting in 1938, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, it looks like they've changed their mind, but they haven't. The only people saying in 1938 when when the king comes into town are those who had been following him, namely his 12 disciples and the few believers in the midst of them. This is not the salvation of Israel because Jesus will look right out. Look at verse 41, our passage today. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Now this is Jesus, our Lord, who has told the Jews You won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They just said it, and Jesus is weeping. Why? You see, Jesus might be believed on and in by a group of followers, namely his 12 disciples and a few others. But he also knows that one of his disciples is a devil. That's what he's called in John chapter 6. He's a devil. He knows all about Judas Iscariot. He knows that his... his, uh, uh, right-hand man Peter's going to deny knowing him because a little girl's going to scare him so bad, asking him where he's from. He knows that. He knows that the rest of the disciples are going to scatter. So even his own followers that know him and love him, he knows what they're going to do. So even those who are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're saying that. Jesus looks out again over the city of Jerusalem and he sees total unbelief represented by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin. And he wept over it. Isn't that interesting that God would weep? God as a man weeping over the unbelief of the people he created. Don't ever believe that in God becoming a man and living our life that he doesn't know what it's like to feel pain. He hasn't endured any physical pain at this point. I say any. I mean, he was a carpenter. I'm sure he smashed his finger a time or two. He knew that kind of pain, but he knows what's coming. He's not buying the press of the people that are saying, blessed is the king in the previous passage. Jesus' weeping is that he knows what's coming. And I would say as any pastor or anyone who teaches knows that you can be loved one day and it won't take but, a, but hardly anything to be ignored and hated the next. I myself have experienced that. Um, that's not in any way to try to garner any kind of compassion. That's true with anyone. Someone will love you today and and hate you the next. And they don't really need a whole good bit of reason not to or or to, to, to hate you. Jesus is weeping over the city that's crying out, blessed is the king. He knows it's Monday here. He knows that by Friday they will be yelling, not blessed is the king, but they will be yelling this, crucify him, crucify him. He knows this. I'd weep too. So as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. And he wept over it, saying, if you had known. Again, it's not the city per se, although the city means something to him. It's the people in the city. It's the Jewish people. If you had known in this day, even you, which is to say, you above all people, Israel, 
Jesus would be saying, I am from you. I'm from the tribe of Judah, the lineage of Abraham. You've seen me over the last three plus years heal all the sick, make blind people see, make deaf people hear. You've seen me raise the dead, heal leprosy, forgive sins. You've seen it. You've experienced it. If you had known in this day, even you, you who know so much, the things which make for peace, if you had known in this day the things that make for peace. Remember, that word peace, I think it's important here because they think those that have been claiming, proclaiming, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they think he's going into Jerusalem to set himself up as the next David, the next king. And they think that's the peace that the Messiah will bring. And that's what many people today want. We want a king that makes our lives good. That's why we vote. We vote for the people we vote for in our, our country, whatever, whichever one you vote for. You're voting for the one that's going to make your life better, right? Admit it. You're voting for the one that makes your life better. Less taxes, maybe. We don't want this. We want that. We want to be able to carry our guns, and we'll be able to do our thing and, and drive gas-powered cars and trucks and, and blah, blah, blah. That's the same thing. They, they wanted peace. And Jesus is saying, if you had known the things which make for, for peace, and he's thinking the true peace. If you knew that I was here to bring peace between you and God, then you might wake up, I guess he's saying. If you had known in this day, you of all people, the things which make for peace. Now these were the killers of the prophets These are the Jews. These are the people that murdered God's prophets. God lovingly sent to them throughout the Old Testament, throughout their time when they were at their worst, disobeying God, burning their own children in the fire. Today we call that abortion. Burning their own children in the fire, cursing God, setting up other gods in front of them. And God is lovingly sending them prophets to call them to repentance. They killed them. And Jesus knows they're going to kill him. If you had known what makes for peace, but now, latter part of verse 42, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. They meaning those things which make for peace. Folks, this is a sobering passage of Scripture. What it means is God has sent you over and over light, truth. He sent it. Because he loves you. Because he wants you to wake up. He wants you to know true peace. You keep rejecting it. And now Jesus says, it's over. Now these things that were made manifest to you are hidden from your eyes. He knows of their ultimate judgment. So he weeps. They've been hidden from your eyes. Let me just make a quick application on that. You're only going to hear the gospel preached so many times in your life. That invitation is only given to you so many times before God says, done with you. And I don't mean kill you. Close your eyes for good. You may know someone like this. You have preached the gospel to them over and over and over, and now you're just a nuisance to them. You're just a salesman. They're tired of hearing it. They may have even told you, look, you're welcome in our house, but uh, might even be family, but uh, leave your religion at home. We're not interested These are the ones, could very well be that God has said, I've reached out enough, it's over, it's done. The offer has been rescinded. Now, I don't know when that is. And I'm not sure that it's up to us to decide that that's happened. Keep sharing the gospel. 
The application is not for us to decide, well, God told me to stop sharing it. Keep sharing it, but know that there is a point of no return. And then Jesus tells them, they've been hidden from your eyes, verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. Remember, he's talking to Jerusalem. He's standing out over the city, right, right next to the city on the Mount of Olives and proclaiming this. He might have actually entered the city at this point by now. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us. Mark tells us that when Jesus went into the temple on that Monday, in his triumphal entry, he goes in and all he did, only thing that was left for the day in Mark 11, uh, 11 and 12, he just went in and looked around and went back to Bethany where he was staying. He would go to Bethany every night. Remember, Bethany's just right over the Mount of Olives, about two miles away from Jerusalem where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. This is the Passion Week. It's, it's the week of, uh, of the Passover. Uh, it's probably quarter million Jews that have come to town for this annual Passover. Jesus will come into the city and he'll go back out and stay in Bethany. This is the Monday. He came in from Bethany. In fact, um, if you were to go, if we went back to John chapter 12, verses 1 and, and following, we see that Jesus arrived from Jericho, where we left him in Luke 19, or early part of Luke 19. He comes in on the Saturday before the Friday, he dies. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrives in Bethany, where he stayed with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. On that day, his feet were washed by Mary's tears. She dried them with her hair. There was an oil poured over his head and his feet. Judas Iscariot got very angry at this. Why waste such an expensive perfume on this man? And he set out there to have Jesus betrayed. He was tired of Jesus at this point. On that Saturday, that's what happened. That day closes. The next day, people gather together to see this Lazarus who was raised from the dead a short time prior. I'd gather for that. He was dead for four days. Let's see if he's really alive. On Monday, he comes into town. And after the day, he comes down the Mount of Olives on the colt. He goes down to the Kidron Valley, right past the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes into the temple, and Mark says he looked around and went back to Bethany. And here's what he's saying. He didn't just look around. In verse 43, he tells the Jews in Jerusalem, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Well, there it is. Because you would not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus is speaking. It's Monday. It's March the 30th. It's A.D. 33. In A.D. 66, 33 years later, the Jews began a revolt against the Romans who were their dominant, was the dominant world power at the time over and ruling in Judea. In 66, they began to rebel. By A.D. 70, the emperor of the day was named Vespasian. He reigned from 69 to 79. He had a son named Titus. Not the same Titus in your Bible. His son was the general in his army. And Vespasian sent his son Titus to put down the Jewish rebellion, which he did. And by A.D. 70, there was a barricade around the wall in Jerusalem. It said that the Jews burned the first one, so they built another one. And they hemmed them in. And what you do in such a situation is you wait for people to starve to death. In Josephus' record, who was a Jewish historian living in that day, he tells us what happened. It's too graphic for church, actually. 
especially for children here. It's horrible what happened. They ate each other. They drank their own urine. They ate their own feces. These are clean and unclean people. No one could get out and no one could get in. Until such a time as Titus did break in, break down their walls, and completely destroy what was left of Jerusalem, and this happened in AD 70, exactly what Jesus said would happen. The days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. That happened. Judaism did not die that day. It was a final... um, burst of energy came upon the Jews in A.D. 132, and by A.D. 135, a man named Bar Kokhba led another revolt, and he was put down by Emperor Hadrian. And he cast out the Jews from that area, and he completely, he renamed the place Syria-Palestine after the Jewish archenemy, the Philistines. And so Judaism as a nation, as a people, they can only worship in their temple. They can only worship with a priest from the line of Aaron of the tribe of Levi. They're gone. Why? Last line of verse 44. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. On that temple mount today, when you go, if you visit, there are stones left from that war. There is a wall that Titus left called the Western Wailing Wall. You see it on TV, and if you've seen it up close, it's an amazing sight. So it looks like it's a bit of hyperbole because Jesus said it won't leave one stone upon another. The Romans did leave a couple of towers and that wall. They needed it. Today, Jews, they do the back and forth motion at the wall. When you go there, they will pray for you for about $20. Give them the hand and say, no, I'll pray for you for free. That's what's left. You can walk around the entire Temple Mount and you can see stones everywhere. It's the vestiges. It's what's left over from what Titus did based on Jesus' prophecy. Why? You didn't recognize the time of your visitation. You didn't recognize your Messiah then or now. As you know, in history, the Jews became a people again with with a homeland. They never stopped being a people, but they were a people without a homeland. By a UN decree in 1947, by 1948, the Jews were given a portion of their old homeland, the land of milk and honey, flowing milk and honey, the land given to Abraham. In 1948, they fought their war to have it. In 1967, they maintained it. In 1973, they maintained it. They continue to maintain it today in unbelief. God is gathering that nation. He is not blessing them because they are good any more so than he blesses us because we're good. God has a covenant with this people. And that covenant, they declined to be a part of. They disobeyed and began to be cursed then and continue to be cursed today. Folks, what's on the news today is based on what Jesus said then. You can't miss the ties. Those rocks, those stones that you see in Jerusalem today are literally, I say literally, figuratively crying out as Jesus said they would in in verse 40 of the same chapter. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these are silent, the stones will cry out. The stones in Jerusalem cry out. Tell you what else cries out there is that beautiful ornate building called the Dome of the Rock that sits right where the Jewish temple once sat. It cries out for judgment against Israel, then and now. Why? 
because you didn't recognize the time of your visitation, because you rejected the Messiah sent to save you, that wasn't sent at that time to become the next David, but was there to forgive your sins, to bring you real peace between you and God. You missed it, and they began to be cursed then, and it endures until 2023 and beyond. Remember last week we went through the 490 years, the 77s of Daniel in chapter 9? Well, I discussed with you the first 69 of those 70 because the first 69 of those 77s bring us to the cutting off of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah. After that, the 69 7s just stop there and there's an interim before the 70th 7 is inaugurated. That 70th seven will be inaugurated when a peace treaty is offered to Israel where they are able to rebuild their temple on their site. How can that happen? Are the Muslims just one day going to say, sure, we'll knock down the Dome of the Rock and you can rebuild your temple there? I don't know how that happens. I surmised it this past Wednesday night. You can go listen to my Wednesday night study on Gog of the land of Magog. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not much on predicting the future, but here's what God said. I'm going with God and his word. You? All because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Folks, what's the application just today? How much evidence do you need that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ? How much evidence... Do you need to know that you are a sinner and by your sin you fall short of the glory of God and can never and will never be good enough to be with Him? How much time do you need to get over the, the fact that you think you're a good person? You're not. I'm looking at some really fine people. I know most of you. Some of you, I'm looking at you, I'm a little worried about it. Some of you, I wonder why you're here. The look on your face just says, get me out of here right now. This is a worship service. Put your own ridiculous problems behind you. Say a prayer right now and say, Lord, get all the garbage on my mind off and focus my attention on Christ. Because isn't that all that really matters? Not your marriage. Not your children. Not your health. Not all the things we offer up to God as our petty little prayer requests. The glory of God. That is what matters. Focus on it. Attention on the glory of God. Through you unto him. The king has come. He washes our sins away like filth out of our garments. Makes us clean. Gives us credit for it. And promises us eternal life. If you have that, what are you worried about? Now, I said that with my chin up. Did you hear that? <laughs> I'm getting a little excited. Something about the gospel just does it to me. And preaching it, I just got... Don't miss it. The time of your visitation is right now. Maybe you're hearing the gospel for the first time. You are a sinner. That means you're not perfect, and you know this. We say that all the time as humans. Well, I'm not perfect. It's a good excuse when you need to get away with something. I'm not perfect. It works for a while. In marriage, it works once. (laughs) 
I'm not perfect. Okay, you know it. You're not perfect. Well, here's the problem with not being perfect. You will burn in hell for eternity if you die without rectification of that problem. Oh, you're one of those churches. You preach hell, fire, and damnation. Yeah. Yeah, we do. But I didn't make it up. I didn't write it, and I don't seek to gain from it. God gave it to us, and in his love said, if you will believe in me, if you will receive me, if you will obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'll curse you. I mean, it's over and over in Deuteronomy 28, just ad nauseum, over and over. It's one of the longest chapters, and you just over and over thinking, God, I get it. But do we? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and your imperfections that will cause you to burn for eternity in hell will be washed away. And you, by God, by God, will be declared righteous. By God, God will declare you righteous. That's what it means to be justified. What does it mean to be sanctified? It means to grow in your knowledge of justification. It means to get used to the fact that God has saved you by grace. It means to grow in your faith with great joy. It means to attend church and hear God's word and be empowered by it, to be joyful with it, to go shine that light that God shines in you out in that dark world in which we live. Jesus is coming back. And for those who didn't recognize the time of his visitation, there's doom. If we love those people, then we'll tell them that. Instead of relegating preachers like me to preachers of hate, telling people they're going to hell, it's a loving message. Believe in Jesus and be saved from the the terminal nature of your sin. Jesus entered the temple. This is Tuesday, March the 31st, A.D. 33. He left the city. We learn in Matthew and Mark. Went back to Bethany, came back. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a robber's den. Um, This is bold. (laughs) Don't miss how bold this is. And all I see in all the Gospels is one guy doing what he just did. He looked in the temple on Monday, take a look around, walked back to Bethany with his disciples, got up early, came back the next day, had a little encounter with a, a, a myrtle tree, not a myrtle tree, a fig tree in the other Gospels. Luke doesn't make a big thing about it. Comes into the town, he, apparently all night he said, I'm going to go into town tomorrow, I'm going to make some waves. You see, what's going on in the temple, mind you, there are 250 plus thousand people in and around Jerusalem for the Passover feast. All Jews had to come to this feast once a year. So they're coming from all over. Inside the temple, this is a place now to make money. When lots of people come, what do you do? You sell things. I mean, Minute Maid Park, you're going to go to the Astros game. No one's not going to be there to not sell beer and Coke and charge you $10 for a a glass of cola. And and we'll buy it, won't we? Well, we need it. It's a game. Got to have those nachos too. $26 for a thing of nachos. They're taking advantage of us, and we do it. So we know what that's like. In the temple, this is called Annas' Bazaar. Annas was the deposed high priest. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the reigning high priest. But Annas runs the show. Annas is an Al Capone of the day. He is running an organized crime racket. 
inside of Jerusalem. He is the puppet master to Caiaphas, the high priest. When pilgrims come from out of town, they come into Jerusalem. You have to bring a lamb because it's Passover. If you can't bring a lamb from far away, maybe you live way up in the north in Galilee, you don't want to bring a lamb all the way down. Many didn't. You bought one when you got to the temple. The problem was the price on those lambs was up by over 10 times what they were worth. 10 times. And if you live close and you brought a lamb, you were always told that lamb isn't good enough. You need to buy one of ours. Leave your lamb here. We've got these for sale. If you've ever flown out of the country and you take your American dollars, sometimes in some countries they'll take your American dollars, but you need to do what with it? You need to exchange them. You need to go to the airport or wherever it is and you need to say, here's my, here's my $100. How much money do I get back for Romanian uh, dollars? I, I, Romanian, because that's where I go typically. And, and that comes back. Do you get all the $100 you put in? Well, if you were in Israel at Passover under Annas' bazaar, you paid 25%. That means if you give $100, you get 75 back in that currency. They're making money. They're bilking people. All because they can. It's like Minute Maid Park at a baseball game. Jesus comes in. Just a place of prayer. Luke doesn't mention it, but Mark chapter 11, verse 16 says that the t- temple and all of the ruckus, matter of fact, there's animals everywhere. Just mind you, there's animals everywhere because that's what's brought to be slaughtered. There's people everywhere. Imagine the smell. Imagine all the, I mean, if you like crowds, this is your place. If you love animals, you're really in heaven. For Lance Waldy, uh, this is just a local call to, to Hades itself. <laughs> too many people, too many animals, too much stench. That's Passover. Mark eleven sixteen 16 says that in addition to this ruckus, people were taking a beeline through the middle of the temple courtyards to get from point A to point B because it was a shortcut. When you're supposed to go around the city and show some respect for the, the temple. Jesus comes in, thousands upon thousands of people. And they're selling and he says in his loud, godlike voice, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. Do you think he said it like that? Do you think he said, my house shall be a house of prayer? I'm guessing he was yelling. You? At the very least, to get above the, 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 the murmur of the crowd. But he's angry. Don't miss that. God has come into the place where God is supposed to be worshipped, and he is being belittled, blasphemed. If I left Harvest Bible Church for a time and I came back and I saw some schmo preacher that you put up here without a Bible in his hand or if it was a woman preaching and teaching over men or someone with a rainbow on their head if I saw that cross taken down if I saw people acting a fool oh I'd come in and make a ruckus I'd get arrested it's not my church I can't say that it is I'd like to think it is and I've paid the price for that thinking this is mine. It's not mine. But I am one of the shepherds put in charge of this church, and if I saw that happen in my house or my church, well, let's just say the angry side of Lance would emerge. That's Jesus here. My house shall be a house of prayer. You've made it a robber's den. Now, all Luke says is he began to drive them out. Matthew and Mark say he went around turning over the tables. 
Now, these were not tables. At our church, we've got those plastic tables. You know, they're, they're easy to carry with the fold-out legs, you know. We'll carry them around. Very convenient for us. That's not what they would have had then. And I'm doubting they were nice wooden tables. And if they were, they would have been pretty heavy. Might have been stone tables. Jesus was a stone-cutting mason. That's what a carpenter means. Here's one guy, one guy, God in flesh, mind you, walking around, running around maybe, in this entire bazaar and turning these things over. Doves are flying everywhere because that's one of the sacrifices. Money is falling onto the ground. It's scattering the animals, and no one gets in his way. We're not told in any of the Gospels that he had any help. One guy, God in flesh, angry as a wet hen, running through this and cleaning house. What do you think of that? Meek and mild Savior? Oh, he's meek and mild. But don't make God angry. Not in his house. Not what's supposed to be a house of prayer. Does that mean that this church is the same thing? It's not. What's the temple of God, my friends, if you're in Christ? You. We are the temple of Christ. The temple of God, God indwells us. So ask yourself, if Jesus stuck his head into your head, looked around for a few seconds, what's he seeing? What filth does he detect? What rebellion does he see in here? What language, what television shows, what ideas in the temple of God? You'll note that Jesus didn't go to Pontius Pilate's house. That's where he should have gone in some people's minds. He didn't go up to the, to the fortress of Antonia and, and deal with the, the Roman authorities. God comes back and he deals with his house. So if he were to come back today and do the same thing, where's he going? D.C.? He's coming into his church. What's he going to find? I'm afraid that in the modern church, he's going to find just what he found back then. I'm afraid he's not going to be real happy. And I'm afraid, literally when I say that word, I'm afraid. And that's why I do what I do. That's why I preach as I preach. That's why I live as I live. Not above above reproach as best I know how. But I am afraid that if God came and saw me and dealt with me in the church that he's put me in charge of, what is he going to say? Folks, it's good to live your life afraid that way. God is watching. God is watching his people. We get a a clue here of what he thinks of it. He turns everything over. No one messes with him. You would think maybe at this point his disciples would say, okay, Jesus, that was amazing. We better, we better get out. We better get out of Dodge now because Annas is not going to take well to this. And Annas didn't take well to this. This is when Annas... This is when he and Judas Iscariot becoming good buddies. Judas is saying, I can deliver him to you. The whole scheme is coming to pass. Jesus might have said, yeah, you're right. We got to get out of town. No. Jesus came to town for this. But note what he does. Knowing that the Jerusalem Jews who said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord prior, 
He knows that they're going to reject him and kill him. Instead of leaving here, what does he do in verse 47? And he was teaching daily in the temple. It's as if he had to clean it up so he could come teach there. He came into town Monday. He cleansed it on Tuesday so he could teach on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So he'll have three days teaching in the temple and no one's touching him. That means something. Jesus is not that flowing robe and long hair with little manicured nails. I mean, Jesus is tough as nails. Don't ever think of him as anything but. Tender heart, rough and tough Jewish exterior. I mean, the man worked with wood and stone. He's probably got cuts all over his hand. You think, well, that, can that be? Yeah, he was human. He probably smashed his thumb a time or two. You ever done that between two stones? Smash. Jesus probably said, oh, thank you, Lord. I mean, he's going to do the exact opposite of us. No, Jesus goes in and starts teaching daily in the temple that he just cleansed where he made everyone mad. And notice there at the end of verse 48, the people were hanging on every word he said. The very people who are going to call for his death in a couple of days. They all think they love him. He's cool. He's the man. If he can go through and, and overturn all of Annas's bazaar, that he's going to go in and he's going to become king of our nation. And he is, just not on that occasion. So as he's teaching daily in the temple, the latter part of verse 47, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. Well, they've been trying to do that all along, and they're going to get their chance in a day or two. Verse 48, and they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to, his every, to every word he said. The fact that Jesus would go teach at this time, knowing what they're going to do to him, we see once again the love of our Lord taking another opportunity to teach the very people who were going to kill him. He didn't sit back and say, well, they don't. They're a bunch of fickle people and they're going to kill me in a couple days. What's the point? That's, that shouldn't be our attitude in teaching or sharing the gospel with people. Well, they're going to reject it anyway. They're never going to believe it. Do it anyway. Jesus did. Why not do like he did? He went and taught anyway. He cried, wept over the city. Was angry. We see all kinds of emotions in Jesus here. Tenacity. Sadness. Anger. With a focus to the goal. He is coming to die. Why must he die? Because he, my friends, is the Lamb of God. He's not just a man. He is a man. But he is the Lamb of God. What are they there to bring? It's Passover. They're there to bring lambs. And they can't bring their three-legged special. It's got to be a lamb without blemish. The best one in their flock. Jesus became a man to die on man's behalf. And he didn't go, toward, go to God. He didn't go to the cross, I should say, with sin. He was unblemished. He felt for these people. He loved these people. He cried over the fact that they would be unbelievers. He cried over the fact that they would kill him. Nothing's changed, my friends. God looks out over an unbelieving world Israel continues to reject him. We feel sorry 
and we hurt for what's happening. And there's no excuse for what's happening in Israel. But the reason it's happening is because they rejected their Messiah. The reason it's happening is because they rejected their Messiah. Had they received their Messiah, their temple would be there. There would be no war in the Middle East, not in Israel. And one day that will come to pass because the very same Messiah said, I'm coming again. The first time was for salvation. Recognize the visitation. I'll save you. On the second occasion, I'm coming to get my own. My own. There's no time after the second coming to believe in Jesus. Oh, unbelievers will believe. And they will confess that he is Lord and God, but it will be too late. There will be no more atheists, but all those who refuse to profess their faith and believe in him prior to the second coming will spend their eternity in the fires of hell. Do you recognize the time of Christ's visitation in your life? That's the preaching of the gospel. Someone putting it before you. Jesus is the Christ. Believe in him and you shall be saved. Or do you reject that? Are you trying to be a good person? Keep it up. You'll always fall short. Always. We appreciate good people. I do. People that are trying. I love nice people. But you'll never be nice enough, kind enough, or good enough ever because you are a sinner like the rest of us. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Isn't that what he said then? Believe in me and you shall be saved. And they wouldn't, and so he wept. I'm not Jesus. I don't feel what Jesus felt. I do and I don't. I've got too many sins to deal with. I've got too much of the struggle with the flesh. But I do feel that when people continue to reject the gospel, it hurts. It pains me, especially when it's people I know and love. I pain over some of you teenagers out there. Your parents come here because they are God-fearing, Bible-thumping Christians. And you're not. You go to the youth group and you are presided over by Doug Horton, Paul Berger, some of the other helpers in this church. God bless all of them. They love you. They're giving you the gospel. You're on your phones. I would say that's one of the defilements of the modern church. People on their phones during church. People checking their phones. People getting up to go to the bathroom or get a a drink. Now, if you drink too much coffee, maybe you should stay off of it on Sunday morning. But you preach for an hour. Okay. Do what you got to do. But remember where you are. The sanctity of a worship service. It's not about you on your phone. Bring a page Bible. Flip those pages, brothers and sisters. Looking at this, scrolling through. eh. Someone sends you a text, you're going to get it. I saw a funny video yesterday. My son sent it to me. Preacher stands up. He's preaching. Some of you may have seen it. While he's preaching, something in the back goes off. It's a phone. And he did what I did. Well, let's go see who that is. The bass player had left his iPad up there. And someone was calling him during the worship service. So he went back, checked it out. Oh, hi. He knew her. Hello. She sees him. He sees her. Apparently, it's some sort of Skype call. And they start to talk. And he said, yeah, well, he's out. He was playing the bass. He's out in the audience now. We just started the worship service. Are you coming? (laughs) Now, I would have hammed that one up. She hung up. (laughs) 
He made a funny out of it, and it was entertaining. What a travesty. <laughs> the church today, if Jesus came and visited, and he sat right behind you, and you got your phone out, eh, Lance is lulling me to sleep now. Let's check the Instagram, whatever it might be. Oh, there's a text from a friend across the audience. Lance is going long today. I wish he would shut up. You kids think I don't know that? I divine what you're doing. So I speak to you kids again. If you're not a believer, okay. I hope that you will become one. But this is the place of worship. We bring our Bibles to worship our Lord in spirit and in truth. Respect it or leave. Better to hear that from me than our Lord if he came in and cleaned house. We will all face our maker. Our maker gave this to us from the love of his heart for his people. He is calling us to repent of our sins. Get right with him and be saved. It's not a harsh message. I might sound harsh from time to time. I know I do. And yet it's straight from the words of God. God's word pleading with his people like a a mother bird with her wings. Come here, little chicks. Let me bring you in. Weeping over those who don't want in. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Oh God, you have given us so much information. It's so clear that you, you, Lord Jesus, are God in flesh. You hear our prayers. You see what goes on in our minds. We may ask how to pray. We just prayed. The very question is a prayer. May we surrender to you. Everything. Knowing that you are God, we will bow before you. May we bow before you now, before it's too late, before you come again. You have demonstrated you are the Messiah. For anyone here who does not know you, Lord, it is your task and yours alone to draw them to you. I pray that you would. For those of us who know you, who love you, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, deepen our faith, deepen our love, deepen our commitment in these days of trial. May we go out and love you, not just in words, but in how we live our life. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you, my friends, as you go. Merry Christmas. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 